Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of John. John chapter 11 is we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you'd throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hand. If you forgot your Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible for sure, place your hand up and take one of these home as our gift to you. Grab a copy of God's Word, open up to John chapter 11. So we're going to be this morning as we continue in this series called Questioning God. We've been asking all these hard questions about the, that are hard questions that are asked about God, asked about our faith, and, and this morning is really one of the hardest questions, I think. One of the most common objections to Christianity and the existence of God. It's, it's what even causes mature, long-time followers of Christ to come face-to-face with doubt. The question is this, if, if, if God is good and powerful, then why is there suffering? If God is good and God is powerful, why is there suffering? And, and when, when you deal with the loss of a loved one, <coughs> when you hear the diagnosis from a doctor, when, when tragedy hits and you come face to face with, with this question of, is there a good and powerful God in the midst of this struggle? Because here's the truth. If you live long enough, you will face struggle. Good morning. Welcome to church. There's your happy thought, all right? If you live long enough, you will suffer. The only way to avoid suffering is to not live long enough. And if that's your case, then other people around you will be suffering as they mourn the loss and that's just talking about personal suffering. What about suffering on a global level? How do, how do we deal with tsunamis and earthquakes and floods and diseases? And, and this, this problem of pain and suffering, it's, it's more than just a, an intellectual question for many even here this morning. You're like, that's a personal question for me I'm asking. And it's, it's not just a problem that only Christians have to deal with or those who talk about God, but every worldview needs to deal with this question. If you're here and you're, you're a skeptic or agnostic or atheist, you have to answer this question as well. What do you do with evil and pain and suffering in our world? Everyone has to answer this question. In a lot of ways, people come at it. There, there are different worldviews. There, there's the, the New Age worldview. That, that's, that's Deepak and Oprah and yoga. That's, that's, that's look deep within yourself. That's the, the Disney religion of look deep in your heart and you'll find that you're really a princess, right? That, that's this New Age idea that if, if you look deep enough, if you center yourself, find yourself, if you become one with the universe, you will find your answer. So, so how does the New Age doctrine, how does it answer pain and suffering? Well, it doesn't say that, that evil and suffering mean there is no God, but here's what they say. There is no such thing as evil and suffering. They don't exist. It's, it's just an illusion. And it's this illusion that holds you back from your full potential. And it's, it's been so popularized by the book, The Secret. Ever read that book? It talks about the law of attraction in the universe. That if, if you put out good thoughts, then good things come your way. If you put out bad thoughts, then bad things are attracted to you. I've had conversations with people who, who this thinking has even infiltrated their Christian thought and, and you, you go into a, a place where somebody is sick and dying and, and they would say, no, I'm not really. Don't talk about the sickness. It's just an, an illusion. If you talk about it, there, it means you don't have faith because I'm already healed and the, the sickness isn't real. The job loss isn't real. The concern isn't real. That's what I love about Scripture. 
Scripture's so brutally honest. Scripture doesn't say, well, well, let's just pretend it isn't real because we all know it's very real. So you read through Scripture, you come into the Psalms and the psalmists are just crying out in pain and questioning God, why? And you read through the book of Job, a whole book talking about suffering, not trying to get away from it, saying, here are the tough questions about suffering. Jeremiah, he was called the weeping prophet because he was crying out to God over the suffering of the people. I mean, you get into the New Testament, you read through the epistles and just the suffering that you see in the early church and even Revelation. I mean, that's the end of the story. That's like, go to the end and see how this thing all turns out and it turns out really good, right? And you're like, even in that though, you see suffering. Evil and suffering are real and that's why Jesus had to come in to our brokenness and deal with it. What about Eastern religions? Hinduism and Buddhism, how do they deal with pain and evil and suffering? Well, they've got the whole idea of karma. If you do good things, good things come your way. If you do bad things, bad things come your way. And if you do enough bad things, you're gonna have to repay for those bad things that you do. And it causes this horrible cycle in in Buddhist and Hindu cultures where the sick and the poor are just left to be sick and poor because you don't want to help them because they're paying for bad karma. And if they have a struggle right now, then when they're brought back into the next life, they're going to have a better life. So we don't want to mess with that. And then Jesus steps into that worldview and he speaks so clearly against karma. I don't know if you remember the story in the New Testament where the disciples find this person who's been blind since birth and they ask this question, why is he blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Karma. What did he do so bad that made this guy blind? And Jesus says, it's none of that. He's blind so that you may see that I'm the son of God, that God gets glory and Jesus heals this guy. I mean, think about how the gospel, the good news that Jesus paid our debt so that we didn't have to, that just blows karma up right there, doesn't it? Where, where Jesus comes and says, hey, you don't actually have to pay for your bad behavior, for your sins. He says, I, I'm gonna pay for that. You actually don't get what you deserve. We get what we don't deserve. We, we sin and we get grace. What if you're here this morning, you're like, well, I, I'm not into Eastern religion, I'm not into new age, but maybe you're agnostic. Maybe you don't even believe that God exists. Say, so there is no God. Well, well, I think you have a more difficult problem then because here's the thing, to, to be someone who believes in no God and then start asking the question of why is there so much injustice in the world? Listen, you can't ask that question unless you believe in there's a, a, a moral law over it all. I mean, without God, where do we get this idea of justice and injustice? I mean, where do we get the idea that abuse is wrong? Where do we get the idea that the Holocaust was, a, was an unimaginable evil? Where, where do we get this idea of evil? I mean, we, we would say as Christians, there's a higher moral law, a law that supersedes culture. So when you come into a culture where they say, hey, we think it's okay that we kill each other, and that's how our culture views it, and it's okay to do, we say, no, 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 there's a, there's a, a greater moral value, there's a greater law above your culture that says this is wrong. There's a higher law that says abuse is wrong. That says that neglecting the the elderly is wrong. That says murder is wrong. And we have this this intuitive sense in us that there's there's evil and there's goodness and and that, that when we see evil, we say, that's not the way it ought to be. And God would say, I built that into your heart. So the only way we can declare that's just and that's unjust is if we have a a higher vision of how things ought to be and so we can look in at suffering and say, this isn't how it should be. It's not supposed to be like this. 
You know, C.S. Lewis, well, when he was an atheist, he was wrestling through this whole idea of pain and suffering. And he said this, he said, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got the idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust and not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. He says this, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So without God, where do you go as an atheist? Where do you go to say, but I, I, I do have, have a value of justice and injustice. Well, a good naturalist would say it this way. Everything we believe in, all our created belief system, we create because that's what benefits us as a species. And we, we want to keep our genes moving forward. We want our genes to move into the next gene pool to keep evolving and growing so that the next generation, the next after us continues to survive. So if that's true, why get so fired up about genocide or disease? I mean, it's all just part of the evolutionary process, isn't it? I mean, isn't it, isn't it just how we progress? I mean, it, it's how you get rid of the weaker species. Yeah, but the Holocaust, we have the Holocaust. I mean, that's just, it's all working out well. It's all working out how we thought it should. You kill the old, you kill the weak, you, the weak, you, you kill the sick, you kill the babies with deformities. I mean, that's just the outworking of a naturalist view. But the struggle is that even as a naturalist, even as a, an atheist, you'd have angst about that. There's a story in 1997 in, in New Jersey about a, a, a young girl who was at her prom and she was pregnant but didn't want to be pregnant. She gave birth in the bathroom during the prom, strangled her baby with the umbilical cord and left the baby to die and went back in to dance at the prom. And when it was found out, she was charged with murder, but there was a, an article written in the New York Times by Steven Pinker. He's a a Darwinian evolution theorist, and so he, he buys into the naturalist, the Darwinian evolutionist theories, and he said this. He said, we shouldn't be shocked by that story at all. Quote, he says this, the capacity for infanticide, killing a baby, is built into the biological design of our parental emotions. If a newborn is sickly or if its survival is not promising, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter or try again later on. That's, that's just, it's just worked out. That's just how we, that's the logical conclusion. So, so, then, so then where do we then go? Where do we say, okay, that's not a good answer for pain and suffering. None of these happen, so what do we do? I mean, if you're here as a Christ follower, how, how do we answer this question of pain and suffering? Now, if you're here this morning and you're hoping that I'm gonna wrap this thing up in a really cute saying that you can stitch on a pillow or put on a coffee mug, go, hey, we got the pain and suffering thing all figured out. I don't have that for you. But what I do want to look is, I want to look deeply into this question of suffering. How can we answer it? How do we answer this question of, can God be good and powerful? David Hume, he was the one who first introduced the question in that way, where he said, if God is good and he sees evil and lets it happen, then he must not be powerful. Because if he was good, he would stop it if he was powerful. So if God is powerful and he can stop evil, but he chooses not to, then he's not good. You can't have a good and powerful God in the midst of suffering. That's the question. That's the philosophical question. 
For many of you here this morning, it's deeper than an intellectual problem. It's a a personal one. Maybe you've gone through pain and loss even recently or even in a time past, and you still carry that, that, that loss, that life is different now, and you've asked, God, where are you? God, why, why wouldn't you do something? Why, why couldn't you have, have answered my prayer? God, why didn't you step in in this place? And in John chapter 11, we read this account. Look at the first few verses, how it starts. It says, a certain man was ill, <laughs> Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we've got this this story of Jesus hearing from good friends that his good friend, their brother, Lazarus, is dying. He's sick. Now they're They're not just sending it to Jesus like, hey, give Jesus the news so he knows what's happening. No, they want Jesus to come. Why? Because they've seen Jesus heal. They know he has the power to heal. They're hoping, Jesus, you love Lazarus. You love us. Would you come and heal our brother? What's kind of odd, what we see here is that Jesus doesn't leave right away. Look at verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He doesn't show up right away. He, he finally does show up on the scene. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he finally shows up. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus waits long enough that Lazarus dies. He shows up and, and Martha comes and asks the question, why weren't you here? I mean, really, she's asking the question that everybody in pain and loss would ask. God, where are you? You you could have changed this situation. You could have done something here to make this different. Where are you? So I want to dig into this story here. What can we find out about suffering? What can we find out about God here? here? Here's the first thing I want us to look at. If you're taking notes, our first point is this. Suffering does not signify a lack of God's love. Suffering does not signify a lack of God's love. It says here that he, that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. In fact, look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same question as her sister. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus, it says he was greatly troubled. He was deeply moved. Now, when it says deeply moved, that word in the original language that John was written in, that word deeply moved, it actually has this picture of Jesus would have snorted indignation. It's this picture of a horse that's angry that that would snort. So it's not like that that Jesus is just sad that he sees what's going on around him. Jesus sees this situation, and it says here that he was deeply moved. He was angered by it. Now, what was Jesus so upset about? 
I mean, if, if you've been through grief, you get this. If you've been a part of tragedy, you might get this more deeply that there's this anger that comes on, this natural anger over the suffering that you see. I mean, when, you, when you hear about abuse and suffering, isn't there, isn't there a righteous anger that wells up in you? Jesus here sees all this suffering. He's, he sees so much pain. And, and there's this, this indignation that, that rises up in him. And really, what's it's saying? It says that he was deeply moved. It's like he's crying out, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how I created it to be. So listen, when, when you feel the pain of the separation in death, as you grieve, that's, that's normal, it's natural, because listen, we weren't created to experience that. We weren't created to experience the separation that we feel, because listen, when God first created, in the beginning, a good and awesome God, he creates the world and humankind, and he says the world is good. These people he calls good. And right away, you see Adam and Eve, they're in relationship with God. The, the, things are going right in the relationship. Everything is in order. Why? Because they recognize we're created. God, you're the creator. And God is at the center of the universe. And there's order in that. But then what happens, we have what, what we would call the fall of humankind, right? Where what do they do? They chose to say, we don't want God to be at the center anymore. We want to be at the center now. And so what do you do? You move God out of the center. Say, no, I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be at the center of my life and the universe. God needs to be pushed over here. In fact, so much pushed over here to, to stay in here. You kind of have to admit, if, if God says stuff I don't like, then I'm going to create a different God. Because I'm in the center now. So I'm going to make God in my own image. I'm going to make myself God. And if, if I'm in the center, listen, I don't want you bugging me either. So, so I'm going to go against you too. Don't push me out of the center. And this thinking, what does it do? It breeds anger and jealousy and murder and abuse and rape and gossip. And why? All because we want to live at the center of the universe. I think it's why Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. What's he saying? He says, put God at the center of the universe. Then he says the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The only way I can do that, the only way I can love you sacrificially is if I'm not in the center of my universe because when you push over my little kingdom, it's not love that's gonna come back, right? So God has to be at the center. And at the fall of humankind, when Adam and Eve decided that, when we decide to say, God, I'm at the center, what happened was the curse didn't just affect people, just didn't affect our hearts. The curse affected all of creation. The whole earth is cursed. And now we, we see the impact on what was this, this creation that was peaceful, that was in order, that was, there was this shalom about it, invaded by sin. And, and we know that one day the shalom will be restored, but in that moment what happened is, is sin enters in and like a crystal glass that's been thrown onto the ground, it shatters. And the shalom is broken. This peace is broken, and we all live now in that, in that brokenness, in that pain, in that suffering. So here we are as sinful people in a sinful, broken world, and Jesus steps into that brokenness, and he's deeply troubled by it. This is not how it's supposed to be. Look at verse 35. If you want to start memorizing scripture, start with this one. It's the easiest. 
Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's kind of odd if you know the end of the story, what's going to happen. Jesus is going to display his power as God the Son. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But, but here, what's he do? He still weeps. In fact, look at verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. I mean, he's, he's weeping. He's entering into their pain. He's broken. Not, he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but he's broken. Why? Because he loves Martha and Mary so much. Their suffering was not a sign that Jesus loved them less. The original call was Jesus, come because the one you love is sick. They, they don't question Jesus' love. They just assume Jesus is going to come. Why? Because we know Jesus loves us. I mean, that's the view we need to have of our Heavenly Father. When my kids, when they come into my room at 2 a.m. to bug me for something at 2 a.m., Dad, I can't find my stuffy. Can you come find it? Why would they do that? Because they assume that I love them, and in that moment, I'm going to get up and go help them. Why? Because I love them. They know my dad loves me. I can ask him this at 2 a.m. I love you guys. Don't come to my house at 2 a.m., all right? I'm not finding your stuffy for you, okay? But, but they can do that. Why? Because they're in this relationship as child to father. That's the relationship we have with God, that we can ask him this stuff. Why? Because we know he loves us. And you see all through Scripture, God's love displayed as a father for his child. And so don't begin to, be, begin to believe this lie that you need to earn God's love, that, that suffering must somehow show, well, God doesn't love you. Listen, our confidence in God's love in the midst of our trials only comes when we understand the gospel. We understand that Jesus Christ didn't just come in to our suffering, but Jesus Christ embraced our suffering, took our sin on himself on the cross so that when we accept him and follow him with our whole life, we're made new. And we see at the cross that Jesus stepped into this broken world, this world broken by my sin, and Jesus took all of that sin. He took all of your rebellion onto himself as he hung on the cross, cross, and God's wrath poured out on him, and those who put their hope and trust in Christ don't have to bear that judgment any longer. So see the cross, even in your suffering, never doubt his love. That's so important because when you come into a crisis, you're going to do one of two things. You'll either judge Jesus' love through the filter of your situation, or you'll judge the situation through the filter of Jesus' love. You'll either look at your circumstances and the suffering, and you'll begin to evaluate how much Christ loves you, or you'll look through that love of Christ, and you'll see your circumstances differently. Like, okay, that, that might give me help in personal tragedy. I can see that, but, but what about the large tragedies of our world? What about the, the global tragedies? What about natural disasters? I mean, how does that jive with God's love? And you know, the, the disciples asked Jesus the same question. In Luke chapter 13, they come and they said, hey, hey, there's these, these people who are killed horribly by the Romans, and then there was this, this tower that fell over and killed a bunch of people, and they asked this, does that mean they were worse than us? Were they, were they greater sinners than we were? Did God not love them as much as he loves us? And Jesus says, no. 
No, no, the disasters don't prove that, that one group of people is more wicked. Like that, that's junk theology, right? That's, that's lazy thinking. It, it's horribly unbiblical. We, when we see things happen, we go, oh, well, look at the earthquake and the, and the hurricane that hit Haiti. It's because Haitians are worse than we are. They're more sinful than we are. Like, like Muskoka and Perry Sound is this bastion of righteousness, right? We say, well, that, that's why it happened because, and listen, listen, if you hear that, on Christian radio or TV, if you hear somebody saying that Jesus steps in the midst of that, just like he did to his disciples saying the same thing and says it's absolutely ridiculous. He says, does it show judgment? For sure it shows judgment. He goes, but listen, we all deserve that judgment. What he says to his disciples when they ask about the tower that fell, he says, it should point to you that all of us are under the same judgment and you should be thinking of the judgment to come, not just that one event. He says those, those tragedies, well, what do they do? They should remind us to, to get things right now, to, to get off the throne, get away from the center of the universe. You, you step away from that and only God finds his place there. And what do you do? You put your hope in Jesus Christ for eternity. You look to the love of God in Christ on the cross and you put your hope in that. <clears throat> so suffering doesn't indicate a lack of love Secondly, the question we start asking about suffering, well, here, here's another point we see in this text. In Christ, in Christ, suffering doesn't have to be the final word. In Christ, suffering doesn't have to be the final word. When Jesus first heard about Lazarus being sick, he said this in verse four, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says, this sickness isn't going to lead to death, which is kind of weird because it did lead to death. But you know the story. I mean, Lazarus did die, and Jesus goes, no, it's not going to lead to death. Now, how would Jesus say that? It's because Jesus saw beyond what was going to happen right there in the here and now. He saw the bigger picture of the story that God was working on that was going to unfold. And so when Jesus sees Mary and Martha crying, look at verse 23. What's he say to Martha. Jesus said to her, he comes, she's crying, he goes, listen, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's thinking Jesus is talking theology, which would be kind of cruel, wouldn't it? Like going into a funeral and, and people are crying and you step in there going, ho, ho, what are you guys crying for? Haven't you read the Left Behind series? It's called The Rapture, baby. Like, lighten up. Like, it's gonna be Okay. How cruel would that be? That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, Jesus says in verse 25, like, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked her, do you believe this? He's saying, listen, this isn't about Lazarus going to heaven He's saying death isn't going to win. Death and suffering will not have the last word. He says, I am the resurrection, he says. Now, if you're a, a Jewish listener, you've been steeped in Judaism, when, when you hear Jesus say, I'm the resurrection, you see it as more than just heaven and a, and a resurrected body. You understand the bigger context when you hear resurrection. The other thing you think about is judgment, that at the resurrection, we're all judged. And Jesus says, I'm the judgment, I'm the judgment day. I'm going to be judged for Lazarus. I'm going to take the penalty of death and sin for him. And if you believe in me, Jesus is saying, you have nothing to fear. 
Jesus is saying, listen, I'm taking the sting away from death. I'm taking the victory away from death by dying the death that we should die, taking the judgment we should take. You can think of it this way. If you're standing on the side of the road and a truck is coming down the road at you, do you want to be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? Jesus is saying, listen, I got hit by the truck of God's wrath, so you only need to be hit by the shadow of it. Death is no longer the end of the story, Jesus is saying. And listen, in the midst of pain and suffering, it doesn't mean that we deny it. It's not some sort of like Monty Python dark night thing, like, oh, it's just a flesh wound. I've cut your arm off. It's nothing. I've had worse, right? That's not what we're doing. We're not saying, oh, it's just death. Oh, it's just sickness. We're not trying to brush it off as though it it isn't real. The, The suffering is real. The pain is real. But it doesn't have the final word. I love how Paul says in Romans 8, he says that all of creation is anticipating redemption restoration. This idea that the creation is just looking forward to it. It's, it's like standing on its tiptoes, looking to see when's it coming. And then as, as Christians, when pain and suffering comes, we're up on our tiptoes going, yeah, but we want to see when the restoration comes, when, when all things are made new again. So we live with this anticipation and, and not at some pie in the sky sort of, oh, I hope I get compensation for my suffering kind of thing. No, but where we recognize that God will take all the pain, all the suffering, he's gonna turn it into something beautiful. There'll be complete restoration. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. It's, it's like Sam in the Lord of the Rings when he finds out that Gandalf isn't dead and, and Sam says, is everything sad going to become untrue? Now listen, we're not always going to get our answers here on this side of eternity. We're not gonna always know why, God, why, why this pain, why this suffering, why this loss? And, and sometimes, I don't know if you look around, if you, you're seeing the pain and suffering, doesn't it feel like sometimes, man, Satan can just run amok in this world. He's doing whatever he wants to do. It's like he's trashing the hotel room and ordering room service like it doesn't matter. But listen, God has his credit card on file and the debt will be paid. That this isn't the end. That death does not have the final say. It's not all senseless. There's a reward, there's an end judgment, there's a restored creation. There's a promise of us being restored. So Jesus steps in, in the midst of the suffering and doesn't just say, hey, here's a better way to live. He even says, here's a better way to die. I was visiting with somebody in the hospital, they were in palliative care actually and and had an illness and I was praying for her and reading scripture with her and she said the most amazing thing to me. She said, I'm not suffering from anything that the resurrection can't cure. That's dying well, isn't it? I'm not suffering from anything that the resurrection can't cure. Listen, it's, it's not that God is unloving. It certainly isn't that God is not powerful 
mean, in this story, we see both come together, his love and his power. But when we ask the question in our time, in our part of the story, I mean, it's easy to see it in Lazarus' story because we see the end of the story. We see him raise Lazarus from the dead. But what about the suffering you're in right now? How can the goodness of God and the power of God come together in the midst of suffering? Well, I think there's one more attribute that David Hume didn't ask about. There's one more attribute that when we ask this question, we need, to, we, need to, we need to put into that equation. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. But listen, God is also all-wise. He's all-wise. Our third point is this. In our suffering, God has a plan. In our suffering, God has a plan. I think our, our skepticism of God in light of suffering that, that we see and pain and stuff is that we build this assumption that there's no purpose, there's no reason for pain and suffering. Like if I could just see the reason or the purpose, then I might have a better understanding of how this all goes down. Like is there ever a good reason for suffering? Is there ever a purpose? What do we say? Man, I can't deal with the pointless suffering. Well, what you're saying is there is no point to suffering. I was over visiting a friend before I had kids and he had a toddler at the time and I'm sitting there with him and the toddler, he starts running towards the cat that's on the floor and I'm thinking, man, I gotta jump up and like either rescue the cat or rescue the toddler because I'm not sure how this is gonna go, right? And I go to get up and my buddy says, no, 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 don't. Let's watch how this plays out. Look at this guy's crazy, right? So what happens, the toddler grabs the cat. The cat turns around. As you know, cats, they've got sharp things on every part of their body. Like, right, and poof, latches onto the toddler. Todd screams, drops the cat. Cat runs away. And my buddy goes, see, he'll never do that again. And I'm thinking, this guy should write parenting books. That's brilliant, right? Now, the toddler did do it again and again. He's two. Two-year-olds are dumb, right? But anyway, the point is this. When it comes to pain and to suffering... We think it's pointless, but, but suffering does teach us. There's a, a point to suffering. There's a, a growth that happens in suffering. Even, even the most non-Christian philosophers and psychologists, they're even agreeing, no, 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 suffering isn't pointless. I mean, Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, the most wise man ever to live. He writes in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. And why would he say that? Why would he say it's better to go to a funeral than to a party? Because here's the thing. When you go to a funeral, you're not thinking about Pinterest any longer. You're not looking after the funeral to take a picture of the cute little triangle sandwich you get at funerals to post it on your Instagram page, right? You're not thinking of anything temporal. You're face to face with the reality of death. And it's teaching you things. It wakes us up out of the, out of the distractions of the temporal, the, the way we do everything we can to try, to try to mask ourselves and hide ourselves and numb ourselves to what's really going on around us. And we, we hit suffering and it wakes us up to the reality of eternity. So is there good that comes from suffering? For sure, we learn from it. I mean, our culture screams at us, no, 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 no. The ultimate value, the ultimate thing you want to gain is comfort and joy and happiness. So, so do everything you can in these short 70 or so years to live as comfortably as possible. And we buy into that. And then we start reading in scripture and we come to like Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 where God says to the Philippians, I've granted it to you. I've gifted it to you that you can suffer for the name of Christ. That doesn't make sense. 
And if, if I'm one of the Philippians and I hear that, that God's given me this gift of suffering, I'm like, I didn't ask for that. I think the Russians hacked my email because I didn't send that email. I don't want that suffering. And God says, listen, Satan has asked to sift you and I'm gonna allow him to do it. I granted it. And I, I think that God would look at the, the Philippian church and he would say that with this, this glint of ex excitement and expectation, not, not because he's, he's excited for the suffering they're gonna go through, but because he knew the aroma that would be created as their lives were crushed for the sake of Christ. He knew the glory that was gonna happen. He knew what was the end result of the suffering. I gotta say this, in all my years of walking with people through suffering, it seems to me that God seems to do his best work in the dark. God does his best work in the valleys. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon who said this, famous preacher who said this, God gives his most difficult assignments to his most trusted servants. God seems to do this, this work and he gives these hard, he says, man, this person, I trust them so much that they're gonna be gifted this, this difficult assignment, but we find that difficult to embrace though because I think all I can see in that moment of suffering is my suffering. It's tough to see a bigger purpose when you're buried under the suffering. And so it's hard to say, well, God, God, I know you have the big picture, but man, all I can see is this and I don't like this. But it's like this, I, I was going to the movies once with friends of mine from high school and we, we got the information crossed and some of the, one friend went to the wrong movie, even at the wrong time. And so we had to go into the movie theater to, to tell him where we were and where we could meet up after because it was before cell phones. So we had to actually go in to see him. So I had to get by the, the security of like that 13 year old guy saying, I need a ticket, right? And I'm like, I gotta get in because I wanna, I just have to, I'm coming right back out. You can come with me. I have to go tell. So I go into the movie theater creeping, the movie's playing, I'm creeping in, I'm finding my buddy, I tell him, hey, we're gonna meet over here, okay, great, I leave. Now imagine I come out, and my friends say, hey, what's the movie like that he's seeing? I go, worst movie ever. I, I was there for two minutes. Yeah, the characters aren't really developed, the plot seems very thin, right? It, it's ridiculous for me to give an opinion about a two-hour movie from that two-minute slice where I wasn't even really paying attention. So here's the thing. We come at this life of ours only seeing the part of the story that God sees from eternity beginning to eternity end, and we put God on trial for that part of the story. We say, God, how, how could you do this? I don't see any purpose in this. And again, Jesus said with Lazarus, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's a purpose in this suffering. And I don't say this easily. I don't say it glibly, but I would say this. I think what God is asking us to do in the time of suffering is trust him, trust that he's good, Believe that he's weaving a story that we may not see too clear, that we may never see until eternity, but we can trust God, you're good, and you're doing this for your glory and my good. And we can ask, but, but how come I can't see the bigger picture? How come I can't see the purpose? And I would say this, if God is infinite in wisdom, then compared to mine, wouldn't it make sense that there'd be some things that I wouldn't understand? 
I mean, think about the wisdom of God, the God who created the universe with, with the word of his mouth, that he, he breathes, and here we have our universe. We have the Milky Way. They say it takes 100,000 years to travel the speed of light across our galaxy, and the Milky Way is just one of millions of galaxies in our universe, and now scientists are saying that they don't even think that it's just a one universe that's expanding, but it's this bubble theory that there's probably linked universes and just a string of universe after universe after universe, and God created this with the word of his mouth. And I can barely change the oil in my car, right? His wisdom compared, and don't get all cocky if you can change your own oil, all right? You didn't breathe your car into existence, okay? So like our, our wisdom compared to God's wisdom. I think it's like a, like a baby to a parent, isn't it? Like when, when I tell my kids no and they don't understand why, isn't that the same kind of thing? So I, I say no, they, go, they don't understand. So what do I hope? I just hope that my kids, I hope you just understand that I love you. I'm saying no for a good reason. And as God's kids, we can often walk away from God's answer of no, and we can say, I've got a bad father. He won't answer my prayers. He won't do what I want to do. Or, or what else can we say? We could walk away saying, I know my father loves me. I've seen it demonstrated in the cross I don't know why he said no, but I know that he loves me. We'll never understand the mind of God. But listen, our rest, our peace in trials isn't found in knowing God's will. It's found as we entrust ourselves to him. It's found as we believe in his character, in his love. It's not getting to the point where we go, oh, I know everything God is doing. It's when we get to that place of saying, I trust him. I know he loves me. I know he's wise. I know he's good, so I can rest. So in this passage, we see that Jesus' love is not in question. We see that Jesus' power is not in question. So we have to come to this question in the midst of our own struggles. Do I trust his wisdom? You know, we read another time in the Gospels where the disciples were in the midst of a life storm, but it was real. It was a storm. They're in a boat, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and, and they thought they were going to die. And so what did they do in the midst of that crisis where they literally thought they were going to die? They yelled at Jesus, who was asleep. They said, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that this evil is all around us, this chaos is gonna take us out? Don't you care about our suffering? And I, I think, can you not relate to that question? Isn't that the question that we ask? When we face trials, we're like, God, do you care? And what did they lose faith in in that moment? They didn't lose faith in Jesus' power because if they didn't trust in Jesus' power, if they didn't believe that Jesus was God, they would have said, leave him asleep because he can't do anything anyway. He's a carpenter, not a fisherman. Instead, they wake him up. They, they trusted in his power. What they didn't trust in was his love. They didn't trust his care. They said, don't you care if we drown? I mean, isn't that the deeper question we ask in the midst of pain and suffering? It's not so much, is there a God? But isn't that that place where we say, man, I don't like what God's doing. I don't know if he loves me or cares for me. Like, God, you could find me a spouse, God. God, you, you could cure this illness. God, God, you could provide us with a child. God, you could get me a job. God, you could bring, bring back that prodigal. But God, why aren't you? And so we ask, don't you care if I drown? 
mean, their question got answered pretty quickly. I mean, it got answered quickly in the moment because Jesus calmed the storm, but then shortly thereafter, we see the answer in its fullest form as Christ is nailed to a cross for their sins, for our sins. Embraces the storm of God's wrath against sin. Embraces a suffering that we can't even imagine. The pain of all the sin and all the shame. Not just the physical suffering of the cross, but of every sin that's ever been sinned. The weight of that. You know the weight of sin. You felt it before. Whether it's sin you've done or sin done to you or sin you've just seen. And the weight that that carries in Christ takes it all. All the sin, all the shame, all the wrath. The righteous wrath of a just God. And Jesus embraced it all. Hebrews says he embraced it all for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? That's you. That's me for, for his children. He says, I'm gonna do this because of my loved ones. So in the boat of suffering, where's our hope? Our hope is that we have Christ. Because when you have Christ, whether, whether you survive the storm, you have Christ. If you don't survive the storm, you still have Christ. It's those testimonies, not just the testimonies of here was what was happening. We prayed, God answered, now we're healed. But the person who says, I prayed, there is no healing, but I still have Christ. He's still my hope. And it's okay to weep, to see here in John 11, that Jesus weeps with you, so don't, don't try to be super spiritual and, and try, to, try to fake your humanity. It's all right to weep over the pain and the loss. It's okay to ask for a miracle because Jesus might give it, but remember, Jesus has taken the sting out of pain, the pain, sorry, the sting and the pain out of death and out of suffering so that we never have to fear it. That one day all sad things will come untrue and we hold tight to the cross in our darkest hour that for those who trust in Christ, that as the Apostle Paul says, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Every one of us in this room will go through suffering. The difference in those who have hope in the midst of their suffering is whether or not Christ is with you and you're in Christ. One day your world will fall apart. One day you will face death. One day you will face God. And suffering reminds us of that. And when that day comes, if, if you don't have Jesus who saved you from your penalty and consequences of your sin, if, if you don't have Christ, death will consume you in that moment. But instead, you can receive Jesus. He is our only hope. If you're in pain, you come to Jesus. As the worship team comes up and as we close off this morning, as you read through God's word, there's, there's not a lot of real clear answers for the why am I suffering. It's just not there. You read through the book of Job where Job calls out to God, God, why am I suffering? And God's answer to Job was not a, hey, here, let me tell you the whole story because there was a story God was writing with Job's life. He didn't tell him that. All he said to Job was, I'm God, you're not you say, hey, hey, Job, did, did you make the sun rise? Did you, did you build the, the constellation? When's the last time you built a constellation? He says, Job, Job, I'm God, you're not. And Job said, I'm sorry, you're right. And he worshiped in the midst of his suffering. Listen, 
in our suffering, you can call out for the why, and sometimes God in his grace, you will find out the why, but there are some that you may never get the answer for, but our hope isn't in the answer. That's not where our peace comes from. It's not knowing the why, it's knowing the who. It's being in Christ, it's Christ being with us, that's our only hope. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this when he lost his wife. He said, I know now, Lord, why you uttered no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. This is our hope. This is our only hope, the hope of eternity that can change our present day now, the hope of Christ. And it's in Christ alone that our hope is found. Would you stand with me as I pray? Lord God, um, would you recognize that suffering is inevitable in our broken world? Father, across this room, there are those who even right now are struggling with the, the questions of suffering and pain. Father, I pray that in this moment that as only you can do, God, that your spirit would fall on this place and you would bring hope and peace Father, I pray that, that hearts that are asking why, God, that they would begin to see who, God, that they would see you for who you are, Lord, that we would see your love, we'd see your power, and we'd trust in your wisdom. Lord God, even though we don't know why, that we can trust in the fact that, Lord Jesus, our hope is found in you, that you have taken care of our greatest problem, the problem of a heart filled with sin, and you've given us a new heart You've called us no longer enemies, but now we're not even just your friend, but you call us your children now for those who have placed their hope in Christ. So God, I pray that across this room that, Lord, if there are those here this morning who don't know you, God, this would be the morning they say, I want to follow Jesus. I want that hope. Father, for the believers in this room who are struggling with questions and, God, asking you why, God, I pray that in a, in a supernatural way they'd see you for who you are, Lord. See your love see your care and rest in your sovereignty, that you have the whole story, that you're working out in us, even in this suffering, a beautiful picture of who you are and who we are. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.